Before the days of internet and in YouTube, you we was after ruin Bobby Heenan and Rick Rude. And Jake would be the break the way he's playing with snakes. Enthusiast of highest taste was always trading some tapes. Dusty said it cold to let me know about hard times. And Randy be the cream and he was reaching for new highs. Flair was always going and Andre was so imposing. Doesn't matter if nobody can seem to beat Hulk Hogan. Turnbuckles and territories. We be stuck to screens in 1980s. And we can't feed them and made them believe. By the turnbuckles and territories. Turnbuckles and territories. Welcome back to Turnbuckles and Territories, the Gen X era podcast all about professional wrestling. With me as always today is Captain Kiwi. Hey, 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 hey I'm here. <laughs> and you know that Barry is here with us. Of course, George, you never take me anywhere. <laughs> Pro wrestlers and their promoters work tirelessly to entertain and mesmerize their fans. One often overlooked but fondly remembered ingredient in that secret sauce is location, location, location. Today, we explore and remember historic wrestling venues. Barry, you say I never take you anywhere, but now I'm taking you to wrestling venues. Well, it's about damn time. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you guys grew up in the era where it mattered not just who you were going to see, but where you were going to see it. Barry, you and I certainly did. I know that when I was a young man, even before I was a young man, Oz to God, my mother has told me stories of how when she was pregnant, they would go to the sportatoriums in Kentucky. Nice. To wrestling <laughs> events while she was pregnant. So I was apparently a wrestling fan from the womb. There well, you go. And to be, to be fair to our audience, before we even get into this, let's be clear. There are tons of different wrestling locations, venues, events, things like that. And if we tried to talk about all of them, we'd be here forever. These are the ones that really just kind of rung true for us. Sure. There's, you know, there's going to be ones that ring true for you and your area, be it a, a, a venue or a fairground or anything along those lines, because all of those are valid wrestling locations. These are just ones that are just really, really special. Yeah, you know, like a National Guard Armory in a right. lot of places was probably used. Bingo I know halls. here in Tallahassee, we had this venue that was like a big metal building on the outskirts of town. And it was mm-hmm. like literally like a 10-sided building that was just 10 siding and a roof and a ring and a bunch of folding chairs, no floor. It was just, <laughs> it was just ground, like a fairgrounds kind of setup. I'm, I know my father told me stories about how hot and sweaty and nasty oh, yeah. smelling oh, yeah. it would get in there. But people would still go by the hundreds to these venues to enjoy professional wrestling. Oh, yeah. You get bingo halls. You get community centers. Churches even had some events in their little fellowship halls and stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. And some of them grew a reputation of their own. And that's why we wanted to do this particular episode, because we've got plenty of episodes where we can talk about a ton of wrestlers. We got plenty of episodes where we can talk about a ton of promoters, but talking about the venues, the places where these memories were made, that's just something that you don't get a lot of in other wrestling podcasts. And we thought it was important to share those memories with the fans listening. Absolutely. Because I, I believe we said on one of the, our previous episodes that after a point, the actual venue almost becomes a character in the mm-hmm. storyline. Yep, exactly. I mean, exactly. Just to see how it interacts with what's going on in and out of the ring, as well as, you know, the audience itself. I mean, some of them are so big, the audience can barely see the ring. Other ones are so small, it's almost like they're on top of it. 
Yes. So it, it really does play a big factor in that. Absolutely. And to the point of we can't do an episode that covers all of them, Barry, we yeah. had to kind of break this up. So what we did is each one of us chose a venue that was important or special to our love of professional wrestling. But we also wanted to give a fair shout out to some of the other iconic venues because, Barry, as you were saying, we can't talk in depth about all of them. And no. one, <laughs> what we probably could do is do an individual podcast podcast on each venue because there are so many (laughs) events and so many memories about each one of these that we're going to talk about. And maybe we'll do that later on in subsequent seasons if it becomes a popular enough topic. But it's important to pay respect, pay homage to these venues because most of the time the venues weren't owned by the wrestling promotion. Very true. But they they felt like they were a part of the wrestling organization. Well, they became so synonymous with just wrestling in general. Maybe not even a specific organization, just wrestling in general. Sure. You know, I know of, you know, several ones that have changed who actually wrestles there, you know, what organization is founded there multiple times, but it didn't matter. You knew if you were going to this place on Saturday nights, there was going to be wrestling. Well, just like any great top 10 list, you have to get into your honorable mentions before you hit those number ones. But let's go ahead and talk about our notable mentions right after the break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Monday, November 15th, beginning at 7.30 at the Downtown Municipal Auditorium. It's the last downtown event prior to the big Thanksgiving extravaganza at the Superdome on Thanksgiving night. In the main event, Kamala, the Ugandan giant, will meet S. Lee. Mr. USA, Tony Atlas, will do battle with Hacksaw Duggan. You'll see Iron Mike Sharp take on Ted DiBiase. In tag team action, Colonel Buck Robley will team up with Mr. Wrestling 2 to meet Hiro Matsuda and Yoshiyatsu. There'll be two other great bouts on this card. That's Monday night, November 15th, 7.30. Turnbuckles and Territories is specifically geared toward talking about the territory system of professional wrestling, and that was really flourishing during the 70s and 80s. In that time, one of the largest promotional organizations was Jim Crockett out of Mid-Atlantic, and Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling was known as being really a North and South Carolina promotion. Now, in North Carolina, in Greensboro, they had the Greensboro Coliseum. Oh, yeah. And the reason why I know that name so well is because out of that Mid-Atlantic group, they hosted a whole bunch of really major events called Starcade. And we're going to get into that in one of our other ones later, but Starcade was kind of NWA WCW's answer before and later to WrestleMania from WWF. Absolutely. I mean, some of the most historic matches in, in, in as far back as I can remember occurred in Starcade at the Greensboro Coliseum. So it definitely has clout. My notable mention on this one, though, we, we can't get away. We can't talk about wrestling without talking about the Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis, Tennessee, or as I like to call it, the house that Lawler built. Uh, he certainly <laughs> paid for it. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> this was the home for CWA 
wrestling for years. Unfortunately, now it's a parking lot, but in its heyday, it held host to some of the most iconic matches in Southern wrestling. And before you ask, yes, this is where the Andy Kaufman, Jerry Lawler thing all took place was in the Mid-South Coliseum. There in David Letterman's studio. Oh, true. Very true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And continuing in the South, we have the Sportatorium in Dallas, Texas, the home of WCCW and the Von Erichs. We just did an episode not too long ago about the Von Erich curse, and almost all of the matches and the things that we talked about in that episode were related to the Sportatorium. That's that's maybe one of the more famous venues not in our main list. (laughs) Well, and and to your point, George, this is one of the exceptions to the rules because you'd mentioned in our opening about the particular organization not owning the building that they were in. This true, is the exception right? to the rule. Yeah, so, that's very, very true. true. Yeah, most of the organizations owned their own training facilities and I use that term loosely because oftentimes <laughs> it was a barn on somebody's property or, yeah, or a basement ring in the backyard. <laughs> basement in somebody's house, exactly. But you're right. This is one of the few times where the organization owned their wrestling venue. It's the inspiration for that TV show Heels that we've talked about in the past for that organization owning its own venue. It was kind of modeled after that relationship in WCCW and the Sportatorium there. If we're going to give notable mentions out, though, we're going to move into a little bit more of the modern era with this one. But there may be no more well-known place that's not in our deep dive discussion list than the ECW arena in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Bingo Hall. The former Bingo Hall that was converted into their professional wrestling home. The night Kimona Wanalea danced atop the ECW roof is one of the more famous lines that talks about that place. It was horrific and small and dirty and nasty and grungy and it was everything ECW was. I was about to say, so was ECW. I mean, you know. Match made in heaven. Yes, it was was a perfect fit. I mean, you don't get more of the alternative hardcore underground kind of feel than doing it in a damn bingo hall, you know? Yeah, and especially because, you know, depending upon how they had the things set up, they at the beginning, they had the low ceilings, like the Mm -hmm. 10-foot tall ceilings Mm -hmm. and professional wrestling needs a more wide open space to do a lot of the things that they do in the ring. When you have that ring that's set up and Aaron, you know this from being a professional wrestler, if you had a ceiling that was only 10 feet above the ground and a professional wrestling ring in between, it probably would feel fairly claustrophobic for the rest. <laughs> oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, the uh, the apron itself is is just about five feet, about four, mm. yeah, four and a half, five feet. And then you got the ropes and it's it's. It, ch- it changes your moveset just a little bit. Yeah. Well, <laughs> especially <laughs> ECW had its fair share of high flyers, right? You know, Jericho was in that organization for a while. Eddie Guerrero mm-hmm. was in that organization Spike for Dudley. a while. Yeah. I mean, you had people that like to do stuff off the top rope. I would imagine more than one of them bumped their heads up against that ceiling. Oh, I, I'd be curious to see how many of those ceiling tiles were destroyed just by guys jumping, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, still, though, a classic, iconic wrestling venue. And it definitely set a tone for not only their live events, but also for their TV tapings. Oh, yeah. Their TV tapings, when I started watching them in the mid-90s, felt so intimate yeah. because Absolutely. of that venue. And that's why these venues are so important to the atmosphere that was created for these professional wrestling organizations. 
you have the the guys who write the matches in the back, the promoters and the bookers, and you have the wrestlers who perform the the play, if you will. I mean, this is really, you know, people talk about it all the time. What do you compare wrestling to in entertainment? It's really very much like a Broadway play. Everything is choreographed ahead of time and planned out, but it's beautiful. It's a ballet almost. Yeah, exactly. And where you go to see that play or that ballet is almost as important as it is is what the event is itself i I, that's that's a good point not that i'm stumbling over my words at all (laughs) (laughs) no that's actually a really good point because i mean you know kind of what we were talking about with the ecw arena it fit the personality of the performance not the performers but the performance probably better than just about any other arena of that size oh absolutely and then when you get the uh, the fans into it and the fan interaction you know that that adds to the overall atmosphere some of the best experiences as a fan is hanging out with people that I'd never met before. We share a beer. We're cheering for, you know, whoever's wrestling and it's, it's great. It's the common denominator, right? It, yeah. It's like, Hey, did you, were you at the blah, blah, blah place this did past you weekend? This, you know? Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's a shared experience and it's, it's awesome. I, really like the choices that we have made each one of us to champion on our deep dive discussion. And I don't want to waste any more time. I think we should start talking about mine because it's my damn podcast. So there you go. (laughs) All the thrills and excitement of Stampede Wrestling are back live in Victoria's Memorial Arena, January 29th and in Vancouver's PNE Agridome on January 30th at 8 p.m. Stomper Gouldie takes on Killer Khan and Big John Quinn is up against Mike Shaw. The tag team match pits Kerry Buster Brown and Tim Flowers against Sonny Two Rivers and Bruce Hart, plus two other exciting matches. Don't miss Stampede Wrestling live in Victoria, January 29th, and in the Agrodome, January 30th. In Vancouver, call 687-4444. If you've listened to any of my wrestling podcasts before, you know probably the venue that I chose. And yes, it is absolutely related to NWA and WCW. It is the Omni in Atlanta, Georgia. RIP. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) There is still a surviving artifact of the Omni. I'll talk about that in a second. But this place was completed in 1972, the year after I was born. For its basketball setup, it could seat 16,378 fans. Now, this is in 1972. That's a pretty large arena. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, actually. And and I want to say it was one of the largest ones in Georgia at the time. It was. It was the largest in Georgia, I think, certainly in Atlanta at the time. It could also hold 15,278 people for hockey, which Mm -hmm. I was kind of surprised to know that fact. Like somebody was thinking about hockey in the South in 1972. Yes, sir. They were called the Atlanta Flames. I remember them vividly. (laughs) In the 70s? Wow. (laughs) That's a deep dive I didn't even know. And I'm a sports guy. Atlanta is one of the only teams that lost not one, but two NHL teams to Canada. So (laughs) (laughs) it was part of a group known as the Omni Complex, which later became known as CNN Center. So it's down in central downtown Atlanta. They hosted a number of boxing and obviously hockey and basketball events. It was also known as the Egg Crate. Yes. And if anybody has seen pictures of the Omni, you'll understand back in the day, we used to get eggs in these cardboard trays called egg crates. And if you turned it upside down and it had those little egg holding nodules when you flipped it upside down, that's what the top of the Omni roof was designed like. I, I looked and I looked and I looked and I couldn't figure out what the architect was thinking. 
when he came up with that design. They just liked eggs. It was just just like eggs. And it had some weird color schemes. It was like black and brown. It wasn't, it wasn't what you would think of as a modern sculpture, but this is 1972. So I guess so. When it comes to wrestling, it started its first wrestling event in 1973. So just one year after it was completed, but it was more well known for its heyday in the 1980s. Some of the biggest events in NWA WCW history, Jim Crockett promotions like Starcade. We talked about that earlier being at some other venues in the North Carolinas in the Greenberg, Greensboro Coliseum. But Starcade started off in the Omni in 1985. Barry, one of your favorite Starcades, 1986, the Night, of the, Night of the Skywalkers, right? <laughs> Held another Starcade in 89, again in 92. So the Omni was still going on for oh, yeah. quite a long time. Well, um, and it was such a foothold in downtown Atlanta. It was really the only thing that people went to downtown Atlanta for. So Sure. <laughs> I mean, other than tetanus and robbery. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) It was a wonderful place. I mentioned earlier, you talked about rest in peace. Yes, the Omni is gone. There is still one artifact, though. At one of the new sports arenas there, and I forget which one right now, the scoreboard from the Omni is still in that new venue. They salvaged it and put it in a new venue. It's the basketball scoreboard, so it's Mm -hmm. not... but. And I don't mean basketball scoreboard in the modern sense where it hangs from the middle and it has four sides. Not that kind. Right. But just the hanging on the wall in your high school gymnasium. Basketball oh, nice. scoreboard. <laughs> now, I did know that there's one other thing that was left over in the CNN Center is what they call it now, connected mm-hmm. to the Phillips Arena. So the CNN Center, before that, when it was the Omni, they hosted a the world's first indoor amusement park. It was the world of Sid and Marty Croft. Oh, wow. Really? And they have, and it's still there, and you can still ride it, the world's longest freestanding escalator. Huh. It is still there. I have wow. been, my, my, my ex was from the Atlanta area, so I'd spent many, many hours in the CNN Center. That's crazy. Well, we're talking about professional wrestling, and I thought it was important for the Omni and for me to mention some very key specific wrestling moments that happened at the Omni. The very first one that I want to mention is something that we talked a little bit about when we did the Jim Cornette episode, and um, I we've done the top tag teams at mm-hmm. this point. These both relate to this subject. So in 1986, the Omni was where the Midnight Express first defeated the Rock and Roll Express for the NWA World Tag Team Championship. There's a piece of history for you. (laughs) (laughs) What was really unique about the storyline at the time was Dusty Rhodes. He understood what was coming over from Mid-South Wrestling from Bill Watts when he brought them back into WCW. And he knew that a lot of wrestling fans understood the rivalry between the Midnight Express and the Rock and Roll Express. Express, and he purposefully kept them apart for almost a whole year before he let them have this championship match. Talk about brilliant booking. Oh my God. That's how you build a match right there. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was it was a beautiful match. It was a sold out arena, as you might expect. Well, of course. And the the Omni is we talked a little bit about this with ECW being small and confined. The Omni was opposite of that. Yes. It was wide open, you know, big vaulted ceilings that were shaped like egg crates, as we mentioned. <laughs> So they had a lot of room to work, but when you go back and look at the videos of the Omni matches, they were so smart in their lighting of the event. Yes, that's what I was going to comment about. Yeah. Everything is black except Mm -hmm. for the one big spotlight down on the ring. Right. It it almost gives the feel 
in one of our earlier episodes, you talked about the opening of Highlander when mm-hmm. it had that match going on with the Freebirds. It wouldn't surprise me to find out, I know it was supposed to be in Madison Square Garden, but it wouldn't surprise me to find out that they used that lighting scheme from the Omni because it just had that central spotlight. All you saw was the ring. If anything happened outside of it, you had no idea what the hell was going on. So, yeah, I think it kind of came from their boxing heyday because that makes for sense. the largest part of the 70s, boxing was a really big thing in the Omni. And when you have a boxing ring set up, which is almost identical to a wrestling ring, Aaron, you can probably tell me if I'm lying or not about that, but they look <laughs> really similar except for maybe the amount of ring ropes on them. Air buckles. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the lighting of that event, I would imagine that all the infrastructure was built in because of the boxing stuff and they just took wonderful advantage of it. That's, however, not my favorite event that happened at the Omni. That's one of my favorites. Okay. The next favorite of mine that happened at the Omni, at the Great American Bash in 1987, War Games, the match beyond, the very oh, first War yes. Games match took place in the Omni in Atlanta, Georgia. Pre-William Regal, so I'm not going to yell the War Games, even <laughs> yes. though I'm fighting the urge. So. <laughs> This was a classic match. So you had the four horsemen on the bad guy side and you had Dusty Rhodes and Nikita Koloff as the superpowers teaming up with the road warriors, the Legion of Doom. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You also, because the, the war games match is a five man match. This also introduced JJ Dillon and Paul Ellering as wrestling participants in the match, which I, could have been a good idea, could have been not so good of an idea, but, you know, it, if nothing else, it helps cement those two men and their wrestling lineage, so to speak, moving forward, because if they had clout beforehand, they had massive stroke after that. Oh, yeah. I mean, just the, the magnitude of seeing all 10 of those guys in the ring at the same time, just beating the ever-loving snot out of one another. It was so much fun. I remember specifically how it brought together and ended a lot of storyline feuds that were going on amongst those 10 individuals. So you had a, a storyline that was going on between Dusty Rhodes and Tully Blanchard. You right. also had one that was going on between Nikita Koloff and Lex Luger, who was a member of the Horsemen at this time. You had a thing going on between Flair and Hawk of the Road Warriors. You had a thing going on, of course, between Flair and Dusty, because there was always something going on between Flair and Dusty. Dusty had a thing going on with Arn Anderson. The Road Warriors had a thing going on with Tully Blanchard and Lex Luger. Even Ellering and Dilling being the managers of the two teams, you know, like in the two or three weeks before the match had done some really great promo work against each other. This match tied all that up in one fell swoop. It was beautiful. Yeah. I mean, you you don't see that kind of writing, that kind of booking or that kind of just construction of one match to end everything. And the, the nickname that they gave that, if I remember correctly, was it the match beyond? Yes. The war so, games, the match beyond. Yeah. And I think it was for that very reason is it was just used for, you know, kind of the, the, the one fell swoop to say, all right, we're settling all business, you know? Yeah. <laughs> It was like, you know, a moniker, like a World War II, the war to end all wars kind of thing. It was, it was Godfather too. It's what it was. Yeah. It was, you know, it was the settling of all business. So <laughs> yeah, really super fun event. However, still not my most favorite thing that ever happened in, in the Wow. Omni. All right. What are you topping with that with? I want to hear this. Well, my favorite thing that ever happened at the Omni, Dusty Rhodes saves Ric Flair from the Russians, Ivan and Nikita Koloff, and then gets his ass attacked I by Ric this. Flair, Oli, and Arn Anderson, <laughs> I remember which this. becomes the formation of the Four Horsemen. Yes. 
Yes. September of 1985. This was a crazy circumstance that no fan saw coming. Now, at the time, fans hated Ric Flair. Fans mm-hmm. hated Ole and Arn Anderson, who were affectionately known as the Minnesota Wrecking Crew. Right. Okay? What's very interesting and unique that gets lost to history a little bit. At the time, Ric Flair had been introduced both to Jim Crockett Promotions in Carolinas and to the Atlanta Georgia Championship Wrestling audience as a cousin of the Andersons. I remember hearing about this. Yeah, it, right? it was like, they look nothing alike. So. They look nothing alike, so we can call them cousins. That's the best we can do because family angles were very hot in Southern wrestling. If this person was that guy's brother or son-in-law or cousin twice removed from another alien mother, whatever, right? that was big in Southern wrestling. <laughs> well, and one thing that people oftentimes forget, when you hear the name Ric Flair, most people associate that with Charlotte, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. That's not where he was from. He was no. from Minnesota. Well, <laughs> he so he he was from Minnesota. Then he went to the Carolinas. Then he went back to Minnesota. It's a yep. long story history with Ric Flair. But the more important part that I was getting at about him being a cousin of the Andersons. Yeah. So he's in a match with, uh, I think it was Nikita Koloff at the time he was feuding with, which is the younger nephew of Ivan Koloff. And they're right. in this, him and Nikita are in this cage match. And the cage was not the WWF blue bars that you could climb over and jump down to the floor. This was like steel and chicken wire all wrapped around. Like when you went in this cage, you weren't getting out there. It was, you were locked in there and you were going to get killed. And it was top too. If I remember correctly, it actually had a top to it. Not this cage. That was a cage that they used at the war games match. Yeah. Cause theirs was more like a hell in the cell kind of match. Yes. So Ric Flair, he's getting beaten down unfairly. Ivan Nikoloff ends up in the ring. So the two of them are beating Ric Flair down. Who comes out to rescue him? Dusty Rhodes, the American good guy. Yay for fat guy in jeans and boots. Dusty Rhodes. He runs down, throws a few bionic elbows at the Koloffs, chases them out of the ring. He's standing in the ring. He's, you know, looking at Flair. Now, they have beef at the time, but everybody hates the Russians. So it's the two guys coming together to fight off the evil forces from out. Yeah. But while he's in the ring, the Andersons run down, jump in the cage, and just start beating the living hell out of Dusty Rhodes. They break his leg in kayfabe fashion. They're holding him down. They're pummeling. Ric Flair comes over to the door. Everybody thinks Ric Flair is going to go out there to go get help because Dusty came in to save him. Nope. He locks the cage door, puts the padlock on, turns back around, starts beating the shit out of Dusty Rhodes. Now all the good guys are coming down to the ring. They can't get in. Everybody's trying to, you know, figure things out. Eventually, a couple of them climb the cage and get in. And then the Andersons and Flair, you know, they hightail it out. About a month later, there is a couple of interviews with Arn Anderson, where he first starts mentioning the term horseman, not four horsemen, but just horsemen. And then Tully Blanchard, who was an enemy of that group, ended up joining them and October 26th of 1985, most people consider that to be the day that the Four Horsemen get officially formed. So one month right. after this event. Okay. I got to say, if I thought you were going to be blowing smoke when you said there was something better than War Games, the match beyond, I stand corrected, sir. You make a very valid point as far <laughs> as impactual in wrestling lore, as well as 
a hell of a thing to watch. You're talking about the birth of the greatest heel faction of all time. And it happened at the Omni. And that was why I felt it was the most important event that happened there. And it was my favorite. I remember watching that one in 85 as a kid. I was just starting high school that month. And I was, I was like, holy hell. (laughs) Oh my God. Where do you go from there? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Crazy. Well, needless to say, they went on to legendary heights with the horsemen and the roads and the Legion of Doom and everything else in between. That all happened in in Atlanta. But Barry, I know you've got a special place in your heart for Nashville, Tennessee. Absolutely. Let's go ahead and jump into that right after the break. KFC presents WCW's Monday Nitro Live. See the superstars of WCW Live in action. Lex Luger, Sting, members of the NWO, Bret Hart, Diamond Dallas Page, The Giant, plus lots of high-flying action and so much more as KFC presents WCW's Monday Nitro live at the Georgia Dome, July 6th at 7.30 p.m. Tickets on sale May 29th at the Fox Office and Ticketmaster. You guys have often heard me say that Nashville, Memphis area, that's the birth of wrestling as far as I'm concerned. Well, we mentioned about the Mid-South Coliseum before. That's Memphis. That's down the road. We're going to talk about a place that was impactful on multiple different organizations, and that would be the Nashville Municipal Auditorium. Mm. This was built back in 1962. And George, where you were talking about the size of the Omni, where it was like, I believe 19,000 is what it could hold. So 16,000 for basketball, 15,000 for hockey, but yeah, very close. So Municipal Auditorium just maxed out at just under 10,000. So it was, now keep in mind at the time, this was the venue in Nashville. And you're talking about a decade earlier too. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the place where acts like the Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, Elvis Mm. Presley, all of these types of people played the Nashville Municipal Auditorium. So it had a historic lineage with all the people that performed there. Yeah, because nobody associates music with Nashville. Oh yeah, that never (laughs) happens. Never happens. (laughs) But they forget that Nashville was deep-seated in wrestling lore and wrestling history. There were multiple different smaller organizations that used the Municipal Auditorium as their main venue, at least for their big shows, maybe not their smaller ones. But in 89, the NWA decided to hold their inaugural Wrestle War. It was called Wrestle War 89, the Music City Showdown. Yes, Now, if you remember nothing else about the Music City Showdown, there was one particular match that, let's just say Pro Wrestling Illustrated named it Match of the Year, and that would be Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat. Yeah, yeah. that's a hell of a match right there. Any Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat match, it's going to be in my top list. But I mean, this was just lights out one of the best matches I have ever seen to this day. Mm. And it still holds records across, you know, PWI and and multiple other places that list this as one of the top 10 matches of all time. Yeah, that whole flair for the gold stuff that they did during that era between those two wrestlers. Yeah, any venue that gets to host a flair steamboat match in its day, that's special. Flair might as well have bought another house in Nashville because he was here a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Traveled all the territories. He was a tireless worker. Oh yeah, my God. Right. But th- we're going to make mention of Rick a little later on on this one because he plays a big, big factor in one particular event that happened at the Municipal Auditorium. I'm going to fast forward a little bit, though, and talk to something I think may be a little near and dear to my boy Aaron's heart. Aaron, do you remember a certain movie called No Holds Barred? I do. Ugh. 
Oh, oh, I do. Why did you say near and dear? Well, here's the reason. The Municipal Auditorium hosted the No Holds Barred The Match The Movie pay-per-view in December of 89. This was where they actually were having, they, they would show the movie, and then they had the match between Hogan and Zeus. And it was just like, who thought this was a good idea? You know, uh, but were they trying to recoup some of their production costs from I the movie? That maybe didn't do I don't anything know. in the theaters. I don't know. But you went from NWA. WWF had a huge foothold in in Music City, specifically in the Municipal Auditorium. They hosted a SummerSlam spectacular there in hmm. 92, I believe it was, as well as In Your House, The Lumberjacks. Everybody remembers the In Your House pay-per-view. Yeah, because the first thing I think of of In My House that I want is Lumberjacks. Absolutely. (laughs) Now, Barry, you said that the the WWF did a SummerSlam spectacular. Is that different from the pay-per-view? Because I know the 92 SummerSlam was in... England, Wembley Stadium. Yes, yes, this was the pre, kind of the precursor to that SummerSlam. It happened right before it. It was the segue into it, if I remember correctly. Uh, and actually, Nashville did host SummerSlam. I believe it was last year. I went to that one. So wow, but uh, but it wasn't at the Municipal Auditorium. They they got a little big for that. You know, nine thousand fans. The <laughs> yeah, WWE yeah, doesn't even get out of bed for nine thousand fans. A little tight in there. But we mentioned NWA. We mentioned WWF. We've got to go into WCW for just a moment because you talked about some of the events that were held at the Omni. Middle Tennessee hosted Starcade 94, Starcade oh, wow. 95, Starcade 96, Clash of the Champions 97, Super Bowl Revenge 2001. I mean, this was a go-to spot for WCW outside of the Atlanta, you know, area. If they're going to host a pay-per-view, this is where they would do it. That it kind of brings up a point that I was curious about. You started off talking about WWF. I I didn't realize WWF came down that far south during that time period. I always mm-hmm. thought of Tennessee as more of a southern wrestling state. Well, it is. And there's a lot that has a foothold here that are the smaller organizations. But by that point in the the late night, excuse me, the late 80s, WWE had already kind of gone completely across the United States, even mm, global yeah. at that point. So they were really looking for footholds to be able to build off of. And Nashville, because it had such a wrestling history, this was the largest venue we had at the time. So when they hosted it, this was a perfect fit for them. They got the smaller venue atmosphere, but still got to put on a WWE style performance. So was it still about a 10,000 person arena or had they expanded it? At that no, point? it has always stayed right around that size. That's And it is still in... in unlike the Omni, RIP, it is actually still a functioning location for multiple events. As a matter of fact, TNA, Total Nonstop Action Wrestling, used that as their main location for the longest time until they actually eventually moved to the Tennessee State Fairgrounds. When they hosted the Slammiversary back in 07, it was there, as well as Lockdown 2012. Wow. See, I, I thought it was the other way around. I thought TNA first started out at the fairgrounds and then moved to the Municipal Auditorium. No, they actually started at Municipal and bounced back and forth. They eventually settled in the fairgrounds, but when they first started off, huh. it was it was so, actually over there. So most of the TNA TV tapings you're saying were more at the fairgrounds than the auditorium? Yes. Yeah. When I they had did no that, idea. They, I thought they, for sure they were because that building looks like more of a auditorium on TV. Well, Tennessee yeah. State Fairgrounds has always been a foothold for 
for local wrestling. Mm. So when they fleshed it out and actually made a wrestling arena over there, that's when they really started to see that foothold with TNA. But there's one particular event that I would be remiss if I did not bring up when we're talking about the Municipal Auditorium. And in July 2022, that was where Ric Flair had his final match. Yeah, until the next final match. Give me a break. <laughs> Ric Flair uh, unretires that, more than any human being on the planet. Are you kidding well, me? Be fair, though. I The man's getting on in age. I don't think he wants to go anymore. I totally understand that sentiment of a normal thinking human being, but I honestly believe Ric Flair could be comatose with a colostomy bag in a wheelchair, and that some bitch would find a way to go to a wrestling <laughs> ring. I'd watch it. I'm not going to yeah. yeah. I'm not saying I wouldn't watch it, because if he gets up and goes, woo, one time, I'm going to lose my shit. But I, I, it was, it was, there was something just very special about Rick deciding that, and he chose this. This is where he wanted to have his last match. And was it a great match? No, it really wasn't. It, it was, it was pretty bad. But just the idea of him having such a historic tie to Nashville, specifically to Municipal Auditorium, that this is where he wanted to have his last match, there was just something very, very special about it. World Wrestling Federation action returns to the Market Square Arena in Indianapolis Tuesday, September 13th at 7.30 p.m. Tickets are available at the box office and all Ticketmaster locations. On the card, you will see ravishing Rick Rude meet Jake the Snake Roberts. The Intercontinental title on the line as the Hunky Talk Man faces the Ultimate Warrior. At the WWF Championship matchup, it will be Macho Man Randy Savage taking on Andre the Giant. All of this and more Tuesday, September 13th at Market Square Arena. The Big Apple, the city that never sleeps. New York City, New York. Madison Square Garden. Ah, well, yeah. We were going to have to talk about Madison (laughs) Square Garden at some point. So might as well be (laughs) Captain Kiwi that bites that apple bullet. Give it to the wrestler to talk about MSG. Go ahead, babe. It opened in February of 1968. Wow, wait a minute. You know what that means? That means that that your Nashville auditorium predates Madison Square Garden? By yeah. six years. I feel like Madison Square Garden's been around since like the 1300s. <laughs> <laughs> so do most of the people that still go there because it doesn't look like it's been renovated in that long either. <laughs> well, now it's the Boston Garden, right? Didn't they move it? TD Arena or something? No, or no, 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 no. You're thinking no. of the Boston Gardens. Oh, the Boston Gardens. That's a different place. That's, that's in a different Boston. city. This is New York. <laughs> I'm sorry. That'll All get those you northern in, cities. <laughs> that'll get you shot in Manhattan. What are you talking about? That's why I don't go to Manhattan because I stay in Florida. <laughs> We're sorry, Aaron. Go ahead. What about MSG? It's this is one of the top ten most expensive venues ever. After you take in the three or four renovations it's had, it came out to about a billion dollars. I'm sorry. Oof. Did you say B billion? One mm. billion dollars. Yes. Jeez. Well, it is in the largest television market for sports yeah. anywhere in the world. And to your point, George, you said that a lot of a lot of sporting events would take mm-hmm. place over at SG, Madison Square Garden. It is the the home of the New York Knicks. Right. The New York basketball team, as well as the New York Rangers, their hockey team. Oh, I didn't. Okay. Didn't realize that. So it's got commonality with the Omni then. It does. Apparently basketball and <laughs> hockey, that's what you need when you open up a sports arena. Well, you got to have flexibility. And I mean, if you could play three sports or two or three sports in there, why not? You know? Yeah. Right, right. And like like Nashville, they had a bunch of bunch of concerts there too. A lot of musical performances, people like 
Elton John, Elvis oh. Presley, All right. All John right. Lennon. How are you not mentioning one of my favorites, Billy Joel? Mr. New York, yeah. what are you, yeah. kidding me? <laughs> Billy, Billy Joel, too. He's I mean, like closed out performances there before they've done one of these billion dollar renovations. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you you could spend all day talking about who else played at MSG as far as musical acts. I mean, it's what's the old joke? You haven't made it till you made it in New York. So yeah, right, that's right. where you make it, you know. But how does that, this tie into wrestling? That's what I want to know. Well, Madison Square Garden is kind of considered the mecca by many people of professional wrestling. A lot yeah, of, I mean, I get that. I can I, see I, it. I don't want to dispute it, but it pisses me off. <laughs> Why does it piss Why? you off? Uh, well, it pisses me off because. I don't know. Everything about New York is holier than now to me. Like the Yankees are the greatest baseball team ever and mm. blah, 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 this, that, and the, everything about New York has to be better than everybody else. And they even do it with the sports arena. You love your national Nashville municipal auditorium. I love my Omni. Right. I hate that people say, well, but Madison Square Garden is the Mecca. I'm like, okay, first of all, you're not Muslim. So shut the fuck up. <laughs> Why do I have this image of like all wrestlers facing north and bowing five times a day, you know? <laughs> Something very weird about that. But I, I don't know. I, I think, you know, when you say Madison Square Garden, and again, you know, one of the things that I, I'm sure Aaron's going to get to or, or talk about was, you know, much like the Omni, it started as a boxing arena. Right. And that's mm-hmm. where you you build your history off of that. And it just kind of exploded from there. And if I'm not mistaken, it was still used for boxing and wrestling and all of these other things. I mean, there's not many other arenas that are going to play like a Swiss Army knife the way that Madison Square Garden no, does. It, and right. it's still to this day prominent. Like anytime you see a boxing event or a UFC, if you like yep. mixed martial arts or a wrestling event or a concert, it's the only venue and I'm giving them credit, which I hate to do. Aaron, I know this is your topic, but I'm going to give them credit. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of the only ones that I know where part of the promotional material is blank at Madison Square Garden. Fair. That's a fair point. You don't see WCW at the Omni. That's not a big, heavily promoted thing. That doesn't draw the people in because it's at the Omni. But when you use the words Madison Square Garden, that adds more authenticity and more desire to the event. That's, that's a fair point. I can't really think of too many other venues that would do something like that, especially not to that level. I mean, you could say something like the Coliseum in Los Angeles had some of that, but not hey, quite not, the same level. No, you know? uh-uh. I was just, yeah, I can't really think of any others. No, well, funny you should say that because WWE at Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Go ahead. It actually had the first WrestleMania. It hosted mm-hmm. the first WrestleMania. Oh, yeah. As yeah, well yeah. as, yeah. Uh, I think there was two others. Wow. I know okay. there at least one at the time. I think you're right, though. I think it was two. It hosted two different Royal Rumbles in wow. 2000 and 2008, three SummerSlams, and three Survivor Series events. So you're basically telling me that this ha- Vince McMahon has this on retainer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, you asked the question earlier, Barry, how does it pertain to wrestling? Well, obviously, WWF, WWE... That's their home base almost. I mean, I know they're where are they where's their home offices at? They're in Connecticut. Connecticut, Connecticut right. Stanford, Connecticut. Which for those of us who live in a large state like Florida, <laughs> those states up north are also compact and tightly together that Connecticut probably that's just a few hours drive, I'm guessing, to New York. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like that, I mean, yeah. And that's definitely the biggest venue close by it. That's for right. sure. Yeah, because I can't imagine they're going to Wolf's Lodge or some <laughs> shit like that. They keep seeing commercials for all of them. Now the WWE, they they still hold events there for their 
their weekly shows, Monday Night Raw and SmackDown. Mm. But when Monday Night Raw launched in 1993, it was almost exclusively held at Madison Square Garden. When it was a recorded show. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because I think the first one they did, like right down the road from there, was a smaller venue. I remember that because it was the the ICO WWE, because this was when they were tying in with like a lot of the ECW stuff. And then they moved it over to Madison Square Garden and that's when it exploded. Right. And it's not only the WWF or WWE that uh, that holds fence there. In April of 2019, there was the G1 Supercard. It was a it was two wrestling promotions that kind of co-produced it. Uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling and Ring of Honor. Oh, oh so that's where Tony okay. Khan got the idea. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's funny. If you wanted tickets, kind of shit out of luck because they sold out in under 30 minutes. Wow. Wait, wait, wait. This is a New Japan promotion in New York City, and they sold out Madison Square Garden in 30 minutes? Well, New, so New Japan first of all, and Ring of Honor. And Ring of Honor, which- But still- it's super minutes? popular. Yeah, but you know, also not that Madison Square Garden did this in this case, but venues are are notorious for saying something sold out in so much time right. and then mysteriously releasing more tickets a week later. <laughs> okay, I, I can see that. Oftentimes the setup for the event determines how many seats are there and what you'll also see in the modern day are bots scouring ticketing websites for buying the tickets. Okay. Right. And then reselling them on the second and third markets. Yeah. But I still think that's got it. I mean, that's got to carry some serious clout. The fact that, you know, new Japan and ring of honor could sell out Madison square garden. It's something that's on their resume. Right. And it's because of what you just said, we sold out Madison square garden. Now that's something you get to say. If you say we sold out the Omni, everybody goes, who the fuck is the Omni? Well, because it's been closed for years, but that's beside the point. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you get my point, though. Like, nobody is going to go, oh, we sold out Leon County Civic Center in Tallahassee, Florida. Nobody's going to care no, about true. that. But if you say you sold out the garden, well, now you're a big time promotion. Right. That's fair. That's fair. And I mean, you know, it's it's just still kind of mind blowing to me that, you know, when you think of Ring of Honor and you think of New Japan, they're smaller. They're way smaller than something like WWE. Oh, so yeah. So the fact that they were able to even pull that kind of maneuver off, that's huge. Well, I love the fact, too, that we've gone through all these historic wrestling venues and we have talked about the people and the places in professional wrestling that have made these places special as well as the fact that the spaces and the venues themselves made those people in those events special and Madison Square Garden I hate to admit it it's the pinnacle of that thought process it's the benchmark (laughs) it's the benchmark it's the gold standard that everybody's held to when it comes to wrestling venues or sports venues everywhere I think it's also fun to note that our next episode is going to talk about specific types of events that were absolutely huge at Madison Square Garden. (laughs) Yeah. In our next podcast, we're going to talk about the origins of wrestling pay-per-views. And you mentioned it right away, Captain Kiwi, that WrestleMania, the very first one, the big time show of pay-per-views out there was started at Madison Square Garden. And it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about not just WrestleMania, but some of the other organizations that did pay-per-views in the mostly 80s and 90s. And I'm really looking forward to that discussion. Yeah, that's really where it got its foothold. And and I, I, I I still love the fact that as big as the WrestleManias are, wasn't the first one. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk all about that on the next episode. Until then, Barry, thank you so much for being here today. Absolutely. Thank you for giving me a chance to talk about my beloved municipal auditorium. <laughs> 
Captain Kiwi, always happy to have you here. It's a pleasure, man. And fourth listener, we are so appreciative of having you here as well. And we will talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Before the days of internet and in YouTube, we was after brewing Bobby Heenan and Rick Rude and Jake would be the break. Our theme song is courtesy of nerdcore hip-hop artist Beefy. Explore his work at beefiness.com. Turnbuckles and Territories is a production of Gen X Grown Up and a member of the Evergreen Podcast family. Learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. Turnbuckles and Territories, we be set to screens in 1980.